Hello from the newsroom of the Financial Times in London, I'm Naomi Rovnik. Gender pay gap reporting became compulsory for UK companies with 250 or more employees last year, but those hoping to see swift action from employers to narrow the gap will be disappointed. Financial Times analysis of the data lodged in April 2018 reveals that the gap barely had shifted from the previous year. Sarah O'Connor discusses the findings with Sarah Gordon, our business editor, and Alexandra Vishnevska, who's been crunching the data. Alex, can you tell us a bit about what the latest data are telling us? Truth be told, the data shows that there hasn't been much change. The median gender pay gap shifted just a tiny little bit from around 11.8% last year to around 11% this year. The three sectors with the largest pay gaps have been construction at 33%, finance and insurance, as well as technical activities. And those three remained in top positions from last year as well. So Sarah, the whole point of this was that it might encourage companies to do something about their gender pay gap. So why do you think it is that actually we're not seeing much change? Well, I think we should point out, first of all, that this year's reporting exercise isn't complete. So we've only had under a tenth of the employers who will have to report by next April. So that's April 2019. So we've looked at what the employers so far have reported. I mean, I think there are probably two answers to the question of why so little has changed. I mean, number one is how useful is this exercise, really? Obviously, you can report your number. It can be 42%. You can have a 42% gender pay gap, but you don't actually have to do anything about it. And I think that the government hoped that employers would be sort of named and shamed by a large number, but that also that employers, by looking at the data, would start to understand why they had a gender pay gap and start to address it. And that's the second part to the answer, because it's quite difficult to change your gender pay gap. I mean, as you and I have joked in the past, they could just give all the women a nice pay rise. But addressing the sort of longer term structural reasons behind the gender pay gap does take time. And that's often because, of course, there are just lots of men in the more senior jobs. And obviously, you can't go from nowhere to having kind of 50-50 representation at the top necessarily. No, and I mean, what last year's data showed us when Alex and I looked at all the data and what it showed, I mean, that is the fundamental explanation for why there is a gender pay gap. It's simply because in the top 25% of most highly paid employees, men massively dominate. And in the lowest 25%, there are far more women than men. Alex, one thing that I've been wondering about is, I mean, can we even trust this data? Have employers actually been doing it in good faith? Have they been putting in accurate numbers? Well, we should all hope so. Whether it's true, we will probably never know. You've sort of found some interesting things in the data, haven't you, that don't look quite right? Last year, our analysis identified a range of anomalies in the data. They have persisted into this year with 16 companies reporting a gender pay gap, which rounds to zero, and seven reporting that they have exactly equal numbers of women in each of their pay quartiles. And we should just say that that is kind of statistically... Highly implausible, right? Highly implausible, yeah. Highly implausible is what we say. What we mean is it's impossible. (laughs) (laughs) But in the past, I mean, I remember you called some companies up about this last year, didn't you? I think Hugo Boss was one. Hugo Boss was one, but they changed the data when we asked them about it. After you raised it, right, right. So that's another problem, I suppose, is this is all completely self-reported. And other than the brilliant work that Alex and some of her colleagues are doing, there isn't really anyone sort of checking whether it's accurate or not. Well, in, in theory, there is. I mean, in theory, the Equalities and Human Rights Commission is responsible for ensuring the accuracy of the data okay. as well as employers' compliance with the requirements. The question is, I mean, they have an extremely small 
budget to do that work. We don't believe that there is a definitive list of the employers covered by the legislation. I mean, in theory, it's all employers with 250 or more employees, both private sector and public sector. But the government has not been able to provide us with a definitive list of who falls into that scope. So we have questioned whether the EHRC, the Equalities Commission, knows exactly how many employers should actually be recording the data. And we also question really whether they're actually able to monitor the accuracy of 10,500 employers who reported last year. I mean, they say that they've ensured... Alex, you tell them what the email said that they were 100% compliance. So all the companies in scope were supposed to have reported somewhere late, but they did report, apparently. And they've said that when they've identified inaccuracies, they've followed up with employers and the inaccuracies have been corrected, thus avoiding, as they put it, costly legal action, which obviously is great. But I think the interesting thing about looking now at this year's numbers, and I think that's how we should look at it, is this is meant to be a progressive exercise, it's meant to get better every year. The gender pay gap is meant to get smaller, employers are meant to take more action. I think what we found most interesting so far this year is that we're seeing some of the very same problems with the data this year as we saw last year. And in fact, our colleague Billy Ehrenberg has just started doing some work, finding out how many employers are the same as the ones that reported last year. (laughs) Repeat offenders. I mean, that leads on, I suppose, to my next question, which is, as you say, we're in the second year of this now. Do you get the sense that companies are beginning to take it more seriously as time goes on? Is there evidence that they're, obviously, it's not showing up in the data, but do we think they're actually doing things to try and address this in a long term way? I think there are some companies and some employers, it's not just private sector, who are taking this extremely seriously and really putting a whole range of measures in place to address and improve the gender pay gap. And not just the gender pay gap, but the whole challenge of improving diversity in their workforces much more broadly. It's difficult. I mean, there's a relative paucity of evidence to show you what measures are most effective. We're slowly getting to a place where we understand that things like sponsorship works better than mentoring. We have to be very careful with the language of job adverts. We have to change recruitment processes, promotion processes. But yes, there are some companies which are really incredibly serious about making progress on this. Then there are some companies which absolutely don't think this is important and still don't get the business case for why a more diverse and more equal workforce is in the long term a more profitable workforce. And then I also think one of the other things is 250 employees is really very small. I mean, we had companies which were reporting, you know, they've got 251 They've really got a very small HR function. It's very difficult when you're in, for example, a small retailer Mm. in the current situation. Frankly, addressing your gender pay gap is not necessarily number one on your priority list. Absolutely. Now, the other element of this is what's going on with women right at the top in leadership positions. But there's been various evidence that actually there hasn't been a huge amount of progress on improving diversity on company boards either. Is that right? Is that what the research shows? Yes. I mean, the latest research, both globally and in the UK, shows that the rate of progress of women's participation, both in the boardroom and at the most senior executive level of companies, is progressing extremely slowly. And there's some evidence that in the UK it's actually going backwards. So in the FTSE 350, i.e. the 350 largest listed companies, 2017, there were 15 female chief executives. This year, there are 12 female chief executives. And I think that speaks very much to this big problem, which is 
it's quite easy to promote one woman onto your board. But to have equal representation at the most senior executive levels, you need to have women coming up through the workforce. You need to have a pipeline of executive-ready, board-ready women. And lots and lots of companies don't have that. I think the other problem is, is that, to be honest, I think the government's taken its eye off the ball, particularly here. I mean, the country which has shown the most progress recently is France, where you've not just have a legislative requirement to increase the percentage of women in the boardroom, but you've also had a president who's really put his money where his mouth is. So he has a huge number. I don't, I, I'm not sure it's 50%, but it's certainly approaching 50% of his ministers are women. And, you know, you've really got very public commitment from the very top of government. I think, as we all know, something else is going on in the UK at the moment. <laughs> I was just about to ask, uh, why is it, Sarah, that the UK government might have taken its eye off the ball? But if it was just Brexit, fine. But I think the problem is now that there are companies which really don't want to address this. Mm. And the question is, you know, so the companies where the chief executive gets it, the chairman gets it, and it is still generally a chairman, they're doing the right thing, they're making progress. The companies and the employers that aren't, the question is, do you need some stricter form of enforcement or some more targeted intervention by government? And frankly, this is not a government that appears ready to take such action. Mm. One thing that they are doing is that they are planning to ask employers to report their ethnicity pay gaps as well as their gender pay gaps. Alex, I was just wondering, given everything that we've learned over the last year or two about how this exercise has gone with the gender pay gaps, what lessons do you think the government needs to learn as they go about asking people to do the same thing for ethnicity? I think they should start with setting up the process in a way that would allow employers to report meaningful numbers. As we know from last year's analysis, the bonus data was reported pro rata, which didn't really help with analyzing the data in any way. So it isn't really helping anyone. It is, you know, transparency from transparency's sake, but no mathematical or statistical conclusions can be drawn from that. Setting it up right from the beginning in a way that allows this to happen in a proper way would be a great start. Well, I mean, one of the things that's a bit disappointing is that the government doesn't seem to have learned the lessons even with this last year's gender pay gap reporting, I mean, there are ways in which they could have tweaked the website. And one of the pieces of research that Alex did, which was extremely informative, was about the cost of designing the website. So the cost for enforcing the gender pay gap regulations is £300,000 a year. And Alex, what do we know about the cost of the website? As reported by Victoria Atkins, the cost of the website was £2.4 million <laughs> for design and development, which feels like a steep price for a website from a very quick research online, a customized website, design and development of one costs around £10,000. But I haven't found any estimates that would point to 2.4. And I think we worked pounds. out that that was, what was it, about £250 per data record and eight times the budget for enforcing it. Interesting distribution of resources there. Excellent. Well, Sarah and Alex, thank you very much for joining me. That was Sarah O'Connor talking to Sarah Gordon and Alexandra Vishniewska. We'll be back with another news feature tomorrow. In the meantime, if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, do take a look at our latest subscription offer at ft.com offer. <laughs>